Can we talk? No, I mean really talk. Not in the usual typing, texting, posting, commenting sort of way we're so used to, where discussions become debates. And somehow, every opinion is wrong. I'm talking about truly thoughtful, considerate, healthy communication. Because I have questions, and I'm convinced there are answers. Sure, it may get uncomfortable or awkward, heated or hot, but I'm not willing to let fear, insecurity, anger, or pain get in the way of fulfillment, insight, answers, and peace. I need to know, when it comes to bigotry, exclusivity, and anxiety, misogyny, sexual sanctity, and agony, what does God demand? What does the Bible command? Where do we stand? So, are you ready to talk? Well, I'd start off today, not only here in Bellingham, but those in Skagit and Boca Raton watching online saying a very happy Mother's Day to all of you moms. We so appreciate you and celebrate you today and are so glad that you've joined us uh, for this day and our time together. I also want to acknowledge that for many of you, and for some of you anyway, Mother's Day is a very difficult day. Maybe it's the first year without your mother, and so it's a, kind of a rough day for you, or maybe you were brought up with a mom that maybe didn't meet up to the expectations that you really felt like you needed, and so it's a difficult time, or maybe it's an unmet hope and dream for you that you were never able to be a mom, and I know that it's a difficult day for you. And for you, uh, in that uh, category, I just want to say thank you, and I want to commend you for your courage of being here today, knowing that most likely on a Mother's Day weekend, a lot of attention will be given to mothers, and that could bring pain to you. Uh, so I'm glad that you're here as well. Uh, with that, I will say that today... I don't have a flowery Mother's Day sermon for you. I don't have a six attributes of mother that spell out mother and all that, which would be a great sermon, but that's not what I have today. Uh, we're going to continue on in this series. I will be talking about women today, however, but not exclusively moms. We're in this series, Conversations, and I want to just uh, give a, a real quick plug for next weekend, because next weekend, I really, really hope that you'll make it a priority to be here. Um, and next weekend, we delve into the conversation regarding the LGBTQ um, conversation. And I, um, I really, really want for you to be here and to be a part of that. I would encourage you to come to invite your friends, to invite your gay friends, to invite your straight friends, to invite your affirming friends, to invite your non-affirming friends. I think we'll all be challenged, encouraged, stretched, and walk away able to have this conversation in a much healthier manner. So uh, do not miss that next week. But for this week, our conversation, I do want to talk about women, and uh, I am not one. I am a man, so I'm highly qualified to talk about women. Uh, uh, <laughs> just kidding. Some of you will remember, um, if you're old enough, uh, Little Rascals in our gang with Spanky and Alfalfa and, and Buckwheat and uh, Froggy and, and Darla and their little dog, Petey. And you may remember there was a time when, when I think it was Spanky put a, a sign on their clubhouse that said, He-Man Woman Haters Club which excluded Darla and put Alfalfa in a really unique and awkward position because he was kind of sweet towards Darla, but he wanted to be a part of the club. But that whole sign, He-Man, Woman, Haters, Club, it seems like throughout human history, throughout our world, and even in the church, there's been this underlying uh, theme of a He-Man, Woman, Haters, Club. And at times it's been very, very subtle, and at times it's been very overt, and at times it's been a little bit frustrating, and at times it's been terribly damaging. I mean, you think about even in our nation, less than 100 years ago, women's suffrage in 1920, up until that point, less than 100 years ago in our country, women were not allowed to vote because it was generally believed that women did not have the, the sufficient intelligence to make these kind of decisions. Now, I look around at some of the politicians that we elect, and I think none of us have the sufficient intelligence to make these kind of decisions. But regardless, and if, okay, now hold on a second, this isn't a political rally. <laughs> and in our world, even today, on a broader scale, in some cultures where males are highly valued over females, there is still practiced this day um, a sex selection abortion. The leading countries for this are in China and India, where a woman who is pregnant will have an ultrasound, and if that fetus is a female, very often it's, it's elected to abort the female because they would rather have a male baby. 
still goes on in our world today. The World Health Organization recently reported that a minimum of 200 million females have been subjected to female circumcision or female genital mutilation, which has its roots in gender inequality, inequity. These barbaric and archaic things still happen in our world today. And it's almost as if there's this underlying message that men are good and women are substandard. If you've been around Cornwall for the last six months or so, you know we spent more time than normal in Psalm 139 this year. And I want to take us back there for a second, where in Psalm 139 we read these words, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Does that apply to everybody regardless of gender? Or is it true only for men? Is it that somehow that women, because of their gender, half of our population are subs? They're, they're subordinate. They, they're, they're subservient. That, that they're subjugated to this submissive subset of humanity. Is that the, the case? It seems to be the way that it's carried out in practice. Now, we could spend all kinds of time talking about you know, the disproportionate numbers of male CEOs versus female or equal pay for equal work. Today, I want to talk about this attitude that it's made its way into the church. I don't want to talk about our world and some of the atrocities that are happening in other countries. What about in the church? Now, as I said at the beginning of this series, a lot of these conversations, there's going to be some disagreement, some things where we don't all land on the same page, and that's part of why we have this series, so that we can have these conversations, we can listen, we can learn, and we can grow together in that. And on this topic, there will be disagreements. I would imagine that even in this room, there will be disagreements in this conversation. I want to talk about the women's roles in the church and where they're limited and restricted from full participation in the, the life of the body of Christ. Because in a lot of churches and denominations, in some churches and denominations, and maybe that you were raised in, there is a limitation of participation for women. Usually it has to do with roles of teaching, leadership, and authority. That in some churches, women are not allowed to teach unless they teach women and children. But they're not allowed to teach men. And on the rare occasion when a woman may grace the platform or the pulpit of that congregation, it's referred to as sharing or speaking or testimony or talking, but never referred to as preaching. Also in roles of leadership. In some churches, women are not allowed to have leadership authority roles, to be on boards, to be elders, to be deacons, to participate in serving communion or baptizing. In some churches, women are not allowed to lead small groups unless it's women or children and are not allowed to lead ministries if men are involved. Which throws up this one big question I don't want to spend any time on, but when does a small child boy become a man and no longer under the authority of a woman? Is it at 13? And if you've spent any amount of time with 13-year-old boys, <laughs> you know they need some help. Or is it 18? Or is it 21? Or is it when they can shave? Or is it when they're 25? Or is it when they're married? And if that's the case, Jesus and John the Baptist never fell into that category. Now, I will say this. As we talk about this topic, as we have this conversation, there is no way to fully um, divorce ourselves from some of our upbringing, some of the things, the traditions we were raised in, the cultures, the environments. I understand that, that our upbringing, our, our teachings on this, the experiences we've had, will no doubt shape our thinking and our beliefs about this. With that said, I want to have full disclosure here from where I come from in my upbringing. My great-grandmother, great-grandmother, was an ordained preacher in, in Oklahoma. She was one of the most influential spiritual leaders in my dad's life. Later as my dad got into later high school, his pastor was a woman. She was the one that encouraged him to go to Bible school, help pay for it so that he would become a pastor. That's a part of my heritage. My dad became a pastor, and his church began to grow. And in my uh, later high school years, he brought on an associate pastor, Pastor Flynn, to share the preaching load and the leadership load of a growing church. Pastor Flynn's a great preacher and a great leader. Pastor Flynn also happens to be a woman, Jeanette Flynn. Side note, she and her husband were actually at our church last week on the 9 o'clock service, and I was out of town, didn't get to see them. So, Jeanette, Chuck, if you were watching this, I'm sorry I missed you last week. But when she came on staff as a preacher and leader in the church, there were people that left that church because of this conversation, because of this issue. 
Other full disclosure, I've had my sister preach on this platform, and she will do that again. Uh, we've had Willow Weston and other women who have preached on this platform. We have women on our elder board. We have women that lead large segments of our ministries here at this church. So you know the bent from which I come. Here's what I'm wondering is, for these next moments, can we try to take our cultural upbringing, our environments that we can raise with, even what we think seems to make sense, and put those aside and say, let's take a look at what God's word says about this conversation. And with that said, I want, it, I want us to look at God's word and not just hand select a few a few different scriptures, because no matter where you land on this conversation, you can hand select a few scriptures to build your case. I want us to look at what is referred to as the, 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 the full teaching, the full weight, the full preponderance of the word of God on this one. One other thing is that I want us to look at a lot of scripture, and there's a lot that's listed in your link that we're not going to look up. You won't have time to go to each one of them. They're listed. You can do some further study on that. And we're going to go through a lot of scripture. I want us to cover the whole Bible. With that said, last night I preached very, very long. And so my goal today is to shave 10 minutes off of last night's sermon. So you ready to go? I'm just going to talk a lot faster. Here we go. So in this conversation, I think it's important for us to go back and see, you know, what is God's plan from the start? When it comes to the genders and the gender roles, what is God's plan from the start? So we go back to the creation narrative in Genesis where he creates the heavens and the earth and the light and the, the day and the night and the stars and the moon and separates the water from the, the land and the, the plants and then the animals. And then on day six, day six we read this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. This is what sets humanity apart from all of the rest of creation, all the rest of the plant and animal world is that everything else was spoken into existence. When it came to humanity, God handcrafted out of the dust of the earth, blew his breath, his spirit, his pneuma into this, and breathed, and we are stamped with the image of God. Humanity is at, at a sacred level that is different than all of the rest of creation. Now, in Hebrew literature, very often there's a parallelism. We've talked about this, where the second line goes on to explain the first line. And we have this in this one as well. Male and female, he created them. While it's a bit mysterious, that part of being created in the image of God is this whole thing of genders, that God intentionally created two genders. You know, he didn't have to do that, but he intentionally created. This is a part of his initial design. That both males and females are co-image bearers. This is really important. But it goes on beyond that. It says, God blessed, you know, he just pours out his favor. God blessed them, both the male and the female, and said to them, both the male and the female, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and every other living creature that moves on the ground. What's interesting is there's no mention of a division of labor here or a hierarchy here. It talks about these two that are co-image bearers of God, now, there's this co-regency in ruling, subduing and ruling, this, this dominion over the earth. God doesn't say, okay, so this is how I've designed it. Adam, I'm going to give you the really important task. You rule and give dominion over the earth. Eve, I tell you what, you be at home, do some domestic things, you know, clean, cook. Kind of be legally blonde. Look good when he comes home and be ready to fulfill all his needs. God never says that. God says, from the beginning... They're equals in their value and their worth because they're both stamped with the image of God. They're co-regents in the, in the opportunity and the responsibility of dominion. No hierarchy. To which someone say, well, yeah, but like in chapter 2, don't we read? Well, let's look at chapter 2, verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good. Up to this point, everything's been good. He said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So see, God made a helper. And we look at this, we look at a helper kind of like this, this junior assistant, like someone that, that you can delegate to, someone that's lower on the totem pole, a subordinate, as it were, that you can unload all the tasks you don't want to do, all the, to free you up to do the important stuff. Well, that would seem to make sense, except this word helper, it occurs again and again and again throughout the Old Testament. And you know who it most often refers to? God. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help like a gopher, like a junior assistant in our time of trouble? No. 
And if it was just his helper to, to help out with the tasks, just to delegate some tasks to, you'd think that could have been done in another way. In fact, it goes on to say, so the man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the air and the beasts of the field, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. If a helper is only to delegate tasks to, and all these animals come before him, he could have said, the oxen, the oxen can help me with my plowing. That would be helpful, but the oxen is not a suitable helper for whatever God's talking about here. Or a horse. A horse could help me with my transportation. That would be helpful, but the horse is not a suitable helper for Adam. A dog, a dog could help herd these animals and help me have dominion over them. A dog would be wonderful, very helpful, but not a suitable helper. Helper. A, a cat has, has no suitable purpose at all. The, the fall hasn't happened. There are no cats. They're not helpful at all. <laughs> so if it was just about a task, then it could have been one of these animals. But what is he even talking about? What is it that's not good? He said, it is not good for the man to be alone. It's not the task load that's not good. It's the aloneness that's not good. That man was created to live in community. That's part of what it means to be created in the image of God, that there's a belonging, that there's a community that we're part of. That's what we see in the Godhead. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are three, but they're one. There's a community. He says, that, that is what I want. So God creates from the very beginning, very intentionally, male and female, both stamped with his image, co-regents in dominion, and working together in community. It's all good. Everything goes fine until Genesis 3 happens. And in Genesis 3, everything changes. In Genesis 3, the plan is shattered. That's when the fall happens. That's when the curse happens. That's when sin enters into the world. And that's where there's incredible loss. And Jesus comes to redeem us from the curse and from the fall and from the loss that transpired in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, now you begin to see a hierarchy. Now you begin to see a division. Because in Genesis chapter 3, when God begins to tell these creations of his, stamped with his image, that were to be co-regents living in community, begins to tell them the result of the fall, he now has a division. And he says to Adam, your work is going to be a toil now. It's going to be a chore. It's by the sweat of your brow. There will be weeds. Your lawn will have moss and mushrooms and moles. That's just my part. That's not actually in there, but that's what it is. And you will toil your whole life, and then you will die, and they'll put you under the earth. It's the first time that death is even mentioned. So that's what's going to happen to Adam. And then he turns to Eve. And to the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to your children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To which someone says, see, that's what's God's design. This was not God's design. This is a result of the fall. This is a part of the curse. This is because of sin in our world, because what God designed is now broken. So now you have a power struggle. Now you have Adam blaming his wife, throwing her under the bus. Now you have oppression enter in. Now you have a hierarchy, and it begins to spiral downward. And in the very next chapter, it says Lamech married two women, one named Ada and the other Zillah. At least he's got the A to Z thing taken care of. But he marries two women. This is where polygamy comes into play. This is not what God designed. God designed the two to become one, not three here. And from here it begins to spiral down. Now women are like a possession. They can be collected for a man's purposes. And it spirals to the point where, where Solomon has a thousand women who are wives and concubines for his pleasure and for his purposes. No amens, men. This is not the way God designed it. Women now become a tool. They become a possession. They can be used and abused, discarded for any purpose at all. And this sets into motion the inequity the injustice, the oppression, the misogyny, the he-man woman haters club. And what's amazing is that throughout the Old Testament, even while this is happening, God gives what is sometimes referred to as these, these grace notes, these little glimpses, little pictures of how it really was supposed to be. Little pictures of how it will be when it's redeemed, when he makes all things new again. And it happens in a lot of different areas throughout the Old Testament. And it happens in this area as well. These little pictures where God says, I will show you that I can use a woman. I can speak through a woman. I can lead with a woman. And over and over again, 
Moses' sister named Miriam. She's best known for her abilities with a tambourine, but there's a whole lot more to her than that. She's not just one of the Josephs and the Pussycats. Miriam says God speaks through her. She's a prophetess. Uh, there's, a, there's a woman named Hulda um, in, uh, it's in your notes here, in, uh, chapter 22 of 2 Kings or Samuel. Read this on your own. But Hulda, this is what's interesting. Josiah is the king. He's a good king and he's a godly king, which was rare in Israel. He's a godly man. He has a priest. And the priest has a, a, a helper, a secretary, another man. And they have one that can read scripture. And all of them find the word of God. They read it. They go to the king and the king says, talk to Hulda. Now God could have spoke through the king, the godly king, through the priest, through his secretary. But they all go to this woman, Hulda, and she speaks to them. God uses this woman, Hulda, to speak to them. We could go on and on with Esther and Ruth and Abigail and Hannah, on and on. And there was a season between the death of, of Joshua and before there was the kings with Saul and, and David and Solomon. A season where God, it says, God raised up judges. A judge was the highest ranking um, leader or official in Israel. A judge had judicial duties, had spiritual duties, had military duties, had political duties. In Judges chapter 4, we read this. Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. Here's a woman in the highest leadership role in all of the nation. And, a little side note, her husband is a part of that nation. She is leading her husband here as well. And she's a strong leader, and she's a powerful leader, and she's a godly leader. And there's an issue with one of the military leaders named Barak, and Barak is to go to this battle, and he so has so much confidence in Deborah, he says, I will not go into battle unless Deborah goes with me. She is such a good leader, such a godly leader, such a strong leader. Here's this military general who says, I won't go unless she goes with me. Kind of a precursor to the Joan of Arc deal. Now look at her response. I love this in verse 9. Very well, Deborah said, I will go with you. She doesn't force her way in. She doesn't say, let me go. I'm the judge here. I will go, but because of the way you're going about this, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will hand Sisera over to a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kedesh. So you see throughout the Old Testament, even in this fallen, broken, sinful world, even in this world where, where women are oppressed, that God gives these glimpses of this is not how it was supposed to be. This is how it was created to be. This is how it will be when all things are redeemed. And then, and then the New Testament comes along. And something amazing and radical happens in the New Testament. What's the Sunday school answer for all questions? Jesus happens in the New Testament. And what Jesus does in this conversation is nothing short of revolutionary and radical. Because even while the rest of the world was oppressing women and using them as tools and, and misusing them, even in Judaism, and especially with the religious leaders, with the Pharisees and the rabbis, women were seen as an inferior caste, as it were, an inferior portion of the race, an inferior gender. There's an ancient rabbinical um, writing this isn't biblical, it's out of, out of rabbinical writings, where rabbis would state this. It is better for the Torah, the law, the book of God, it is better for the Torah to be burned than to be taught to a woman. Their idea was they honored and revered the word of God, but why would you take something so precious and so sacred and waste it on a lowly woman? Not only that, but Jewish men were taught to pray this prayer every single day. Blessed art thou, O God, for you did not make me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. We'll come back to that one later. But they were praying, God, I'm thankful that you didn't make me a woman. And there's one other statement, and it hasn't been fully confirmed with archaeology or any of the rabbinical writings, but it could have been very well spoken by a rabbi, first of all. Girl germs, no returns. That was the attitude that they had regarding women, and then Jesus comes along in this unprecedented way, unthinkable way, and Jesus redeems what was lost. Jesus' whole reason for coming was to redeem a broken world, was to make right what had been wrong, to set straight what had been made crooked, to redeem and to, to reestablish this way that God had created all things. And the way that Jesus interacted with women, the way that, that he engaged them, I mean, the fact that women are listed in the lineage of his birth. Or how about this one? In Matthew 28, when Jesus comes back from the dead, the very first resurrection Sunday, the very first Easter, Jesus appears first to the women. 
Now, this would be a great conversation. Why is it that Jesus would appear to the women rather than the men? Especially in that culture when the testimony of a woman was not even seen as authority and could not be used in court. If you wanted to convince someone of something, you didn't use a woman as a witness, not in that culture. But Jesus specifically, he could have showed himself first to anybody he wanted. He chooses to show himself to the women first. And on top of that, he sends them to go tell the men, the other disciples, follow this. Jesus commissioned the women to preach the very first Easter sermon. Go tell the men, he is risen, he is risen indeed. Have an Easter service. Women, you do all the preaching. Let the men hear this. And they fell down and they clasped his feet, which was unheard of. That a rabbi would let a woman touch him. I mean, read the one, I won't go into it, I don't have time, but read the, the account in chapter, uh, Luke chapter 7 with, with the sinful woman who, okay, I guess I'm going into it anyway. Read it on your own. That he would allow a woman to touch him, to be in his presence. And then there was one time when Jesus and his disciples are going through Samaria of all places. No, no reputable Jewish person would go through Samaria, but Jesus said he had to go through Samaria. They get to a place called Sychar where Jacob's well is, and he's tired and he's hungry. He sends the disciples into town to get food, and there's a woman there at the well. Some of you are very familiar with this story. And it says this, the Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew, and I am, and here's a double. I am a Samaritan woman. You have a gender issue, and you have an ethnic issue. And both of these were lines that were never crossed. He says, you're a, she said, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can, you, how can you even talk to me is basically what she's saying. How can you interact with me? How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews, do not associate with Samaritans. The disciples come back. This is amazing. Disciples come back. Just then the disciples return and we're surprised to find him. Look at this. They're not surprised that he's talking to a Samaritan. Maybe they've been around him long enough to know that Jesus doesn't conform to the man-made barriers. They're surprised to find him talking with a woman. They're shocked at this. No rabbi would do this. No Jewish man would do it. No one would do this. But no one asks, what do you want or why are you talking with her? And Jesus engages in a theological conversation with this woman. And after this conversation, he sends her as an evangelist, a preacher, and a missionary to her town. Go tell them the good news. Go preach that you've met Jesus. Go and bring them here. And Jesus came to their community because of this woman, and many of them became followers. See, these kind of things, and we could go on and on, they weren't little grace points. They weren't little exceptions to the rule of Jesus. Jesus came to redeem things to make it the way it was in the beginning. This isn't just little exceptions that he threw in every now and then. This is the way he lived his life. This is the way he modeled it. This is the way he taught it. How about this in Luke chapter 8? After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. Sounds reasonable. He's going around preaching about this kingdom, and his twelve disciples are with him. I mean, we get pictures of Robin Hood and his merry men. We understand this. We get this. Here comes Jesus and his twelve disciples. What we fail to recognize is verse 2 says, and also some women. That as Jesus travels around, not just stopping in here for dinner, but travels around. He has his 12, and there are women that are traveling with him. You, you can't even imagine how countercultural this would have been. And we're not just talking about he took a couple moms along to supervise and, and to chaperone to make sure that these guys brush their teeth and change their underwear occasionally, like we would do with another group of guys. Now he, she say, he starts listing off. There's Mary Magdalene, and then there's this woman named Joanna, whose husband was a high-ranking official with Herod. And there's this woman named Susanna, and it says, and many others, that they're going along together as brothers and sisters, traveling together in this new kingdom that Jesus is bringing about, that it's different now. Jesus had these friends, a really close friend named Lazarus. He was not one of the 12, but a very close friend of Jesus. And he had two sisters, Mary and Martha. Many of you are very, very familiar with that story. It says this, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. This in and of itself, the fact that a woman was allowed to learn. Remember what the rabbis would say, better to burn the Torah than to teach it to a woman. And Jesus says, oh, no, no, no. He allows this woman to learn. 
And what's amazing, we, we read this, she sat at his feet, we think he's, she's just there just soaking in his wisdom and adoring his, his connection with God. But that term, sat at the Lord's feet, is actually a technical term. It's a technical term that, that Paul uses when he talks about his, his upbringing and how he was brought up at the feet of Gamaliel or G Gamaliel. That he was brought up under this person, that he was a disciple of this one. While she's not one of the twelve, this technical term says that Jesus had women as disciples learning under him as well. On and on, you see how Jesus just values women, how he defends them, how he advocates for them, how he lifts their worth up, how he includes them, how he engages them, how he, he seeks them out and initiates conversations with them. Because for Jesus, he came to redeem what was lost, and he says it's a new day for women, the way God ordained it from the very beginning. And then Jesus goes away and he says, wait here, I will send my Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 1, verse 14, it says that all of his followers were waiting for this promised Holy Spirit. Not just the 12, not just the men. Acts 1, 14 says the men and the women were waiting for this promise of the Holy Spirit. And the day of Pentecost came and the Holy Spirit was poured out on them. And it was an amazing, it was the start of the church. And when there was some great confusion about what was going on, and Peter gives one of his most profound and most, maybe one of his most important speeches of all time, and in giving this speech, he decides to take as his text, out of all of the Hebrew scriptures, a verse out of the book of Joel, and he says this, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people, your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams, like that guy right over there right now. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. Why would he choose this text out of the book of Joel when there were so many other scriptures he could have used? This text that talks about the spirit being poured out on all people, sons and daughters, men and women, and that they would prophesy. The word prophesy here means to speak the authoritative word of God, to preach, as it were. So it brings up this question we've got to ask ourselves. When it comes to what the Holy Spirit did on that day and what he has done since, are spiritual gifts gender selective? Does the Holy Spirit say, I have certain gifts for men and certain gifts for women? Or if he says, no, I have gifts for everybody, but the women's gifts are only used in this circumstance, in this situation, with women and in children. And if that's the case, where in Scripture do we find that teaching? And if we don't find it in Scripture, why is it that we would believe that? Dallas Willard, very, very brilliant man, um, he wrote this. There is no suggestion whatsoever in Scripture or the history of Christ's people, that the gifts of the Spirit are distributed along gender lines. It is clearly something that does not even appear on the mental horizon of the inspired writers. And if it had, would they have failed to state it clearly? Especially if it's as important as those who oppose female leadership make it out to be. And some would say, okay, well, yeah, God does use women, and maybe it's because there wasn't a, a man available. Well, that's never stated anywhere like that. Or maybe it's because they're, and I've heard this one, they're under the authority of their husband. I heard this about Pastor Flynn. I heard this about others. They're preaching, but it's because they're under the authority of their husband. Okay, well, that's fine. But what do you do with Philip? Philip was one of the seven that was chosen, full of the Holy Spirit. He has these four daughters. Acts 21 says he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied who spoke the authoritative word of God. And you can say, well, but they were under the uh, authority of their, husband, of their father. Okay, Th that's it's, it's a way of, of interpreting that. But when I look at all of this, when I look and see all throughout Scripture, the way that God created things, men and women, as, as co-image bearers, as co-regents in dominion in this world and leadership, and throughout the Old Testament in a fallen, broken world, how he gives these pictures of women who are leading and speaking and preaching and how he spoke through them. And when Jesus redeems all things and makes it a new day for women and the Holy Spirit pours out his gifts on men and women fulfilling the prophecy of Joel, when I see that, I think maybe, just maybe, in the church, we've missed it. Now, to be completely fair, in this discussion, we cannot stop here. 
I think I've built a pretty good biblical case for women's involvement in the church, but you cannot stop here. You have to ask the question, yeah, but what about Paul? And some of you know Paul and his writings. And some of you know Paul and some of the statements he made. And there's some statements that Paul made that have caused entire, entire denominations to create their stance on the limitation or the prohibition or the restriction of some women's involvement in the life of the church. And there are three texts that have to be considered here. And I've wrote these in your, in your notes. There's a part out of 1 Corinthians 11, out of 1 Corinthians 14, and 1 Timothy 2. In these three texts, in these three sections of scriptures, Paul makes some very, very strong statements. Some statements that have been repeated over and over again over the years. Statements like, women should remain silent in church. Statements like, women should be submissive to their husbands. Statements like, I don't allow a woman to teach or lead a man. What do you do with those? Now, these are important. These are important subjects, important texts. And sorry to say, we don't have time to go into all of that today. I'm just kidding. We don't have time to go into it thoroughly. But I do want to point some things out because they are in there. Here's some things to consider. And, and I would encourage you to study these, really, in the context. One of the things to consider when you look at 1 Corinthians 11, 14, and 1 Timothy 2, is this. Are you, are you just taking a couple of texts to build a stance and a belief on while not looking at the entirety, the full preponderance of Scripture? I mean, from creation all the way through, the, through, through, through Pentecost. And if you are going to pull some verses out of these sections, and you're going to use them as the authority and the stance on which you build your case, then you better take the entirety of those sections, which means women should never have their hair cut, because Paul says that in there as well. They should never ever pray without their head being covered. No woman should ever braid her hair. No woman should ever wear any jewelry that's made of gold, even wedding rings, and absolutely no pearls. Because he says that, pearl earrings, well, he doesn't go to the list, but earrings and necklaces, buttons, all of that. And women should not wear expensive clothes. To which some of you ladies are saying, well, what's expensive? <laughs> I would think he'd say anything that you didn't hand make would be expensive. So if you're going to take pieces of it, take the whole thing. It also says men shouldn't have long hair. So what do we do with this stuff? Here's something else. In the very scriptures that Paul says women should be silent in church, he also gives instructions for appropriate ways for women to pray and to prophesy in church. So is he contradicting himself? In the same scriptures where he says that women should be submissive to their husbands, he also says that man is not independent of the woman or woman independent of the man, that we are codependent of each other, not in a negative way, but we are, we are interdependent on one another. And in taking into account these scriptures, and, and I want to oh, go overboard in saying you have, what I'm getting ready to say, you have to use the greatest amount of caution, of care, of thought, of prayer, of, of scriptural integrity when I say this, you'll understand why. You have to ask yourself, are some of these instances here universal laws for all time and all places and all people, or are they circumstantial for certain situations in a certain place at a certain time for some certain things that he was trying to counter? Now, here's why you have to be so careful. You've got to hear this. Because if you, if you go down this road and say, well... That was just culturally, and that was just for that church and then. The danger is, anytime you come across anything in Scripture that you don't like, you can just throw it in the, well, that was cultural, that was then, and this is now. And then you get into a real slippery slope of just picking and choose whatever you want to believe in the Scripture. With that said, I think there are times that you can look and say, who is he writing to and what is going on? Now, let me say this. 
Men and women who both uphold the authority of the word of God differ on this conversation and on this subject matter that I'm talking about right now. In 1 Corinthians, he's speaking to the church in Corinth. If you've done any research at all, you know how corrupt that culture was, how immoral that culture was, and how the corruption and the immorality of the culture had made its way into the church or maybe had never made its way out of the church. And Paul's writing to this church in Corinth was always correcting what they were doing wrong. He's always addressing these issues where culture is shaping them instead of them being shaped by the Word of God and the Spirit of God. And when Paul writes to First Timothy, to Timothy in First Timothy, Timothy is at, in Ephesus. If you're familiar with Ephesus, Ephesus housed one of the, one of the wonders of the ancient world. It was the, the temple to Artemis, this goddess. And in that culture, this goddess reigned, and, and women were very domineering in that culture. Now, if Paul is establishing a church that's done differently than the rest of the culture, it's a new kingdom, it's under God's rule, is it possible that he's confronting some cultural influences that need to be addressed? Is it possible that in Ephesus, he's dealing with some things culturally in Ephesus that maybe he doesn't deal with in, in Philippi or, or other the regions? Is it possible in Corinth that some of what he's talking about it's because of how absolutely immoral not only the culture, but the church had become. And he's dealing with some of those things. Now, you have to be very, very careful on that. But the other thing you have to do when you talk about Paul is, again, you have to look at his whole ministry. N.T. Wright, who is, um, for the most part, considered the foremost uh, New Testament scholar alive today. N.T. Wright said... That Romans 16 used to be a boring chapter to him until he began to understand that it was maybe the most important chapter regarding this conversation. In Romans 16, we're going to spend all summer in Romans. In Romans 16, Paul's finishing this letter and he's thanking people who've been a part of his ministry. He's thanking them for their partnership in ministry. And in this list, he lists off a lot of women that he's partnered with in ministry. He starts off talking about this woman, Phoebe. And most likely, you can do the research on this, she is the one who's carrying the book of Romans, the, this letter to the church in Rome. And the one who would carry it would be the one who would explain any questions that might be had. If you've ever read the book of Romans, there's a lot of questions to be had. So he sends it with this woman. Later, he talks about a woman named Junia. Again, there's disagreement on if it's Junia or Junius. Junia is a female name. Junius is a male name. In the early, most reliable manuscripts, it's Junia, a female name. And she's listed as an apostle. And then there's Priscilla and Aquila and the prominence of the order of those names of this wife and husband of Priscilla and what she did and how she led and all the way through. On top of all of that, Paul was a Jewish man. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He would have learned the prayer that I talked about earlier. He would have recited it his whole life. This prayer that says, blessed art thou, O God, for you did not make me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. He would have prayed that prayer his entire life, every morning. Let me tell you about this prayer. This is not a hateful prayer. This is a prayer of gratitude and thanksgiving. Because it meant that he was a Jewish man and he had the freedom to fully participate in the temple. If you're familiar with the temple, the slaves could not go into the temple. The Gentile men could go in the outer courts of the temple and then there was a barrier and they could go no further. The Jewish women could go into the women's court, which is a little farther in, but then there was a barrier, and they could go no further. There was a limitation, a restriction on their participation in the temple. And then the court of the Jewish men where they could go in, and even there, there was another barrier where only the priest could go, and then the chief priest. And then on the one day, the Day of Atonement, the high priest could go in once a year. And there was just this, this hierarchy of the temple, and there were all of these barriers. And so as he's praying this, as Jewish men were praying this, they're saying, thank you that I get to go in and I get to participate in the temple. And Paul prayed this every day of his life. And then after he met Jesus, he wrote these words in Galatians chapter 3. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Do you see any similarities to a list that he addresses? To confront a prayer that he prayed his entire life, that when Jesus was crucified, the veil was torn, 
Now it's not just the high priest that has access to, the, to God. It's because of Jesus. We all have access to God. And if the veil was torn, if that barrier was taken away, what makes us think that any of the other barriers should remain? That because of who Jesus Christ is, because of his redemption, that now the barriers are destroyed. The, the old way, you know, the, the, the uh, old divisions, that's taken away. Because now we come fully able to participate in the kingdom of God because of what Jesus has done. As you begin to look at, at all of Paul's writings and his whole life, not just a couple of texts, you begin to see that he saw how God would redeem all things. So when I look through all of this, and I see the way that God ordained things from the very beginning, men and women, co-bearers of the image of God, with opportunities and responsibility as co-regents in dominion and ruling and overseeing the world, and even in the darkness, how God shows how women, he uses them and he speaks to them and he leads through them. And how Jesus came to redeem things from this broken, messed up, fallen world and to take it back to the way God ordained it from the beginning. And he advocates for women and he forgives women and he lifts up the value of women and, and he includes women and he engages with women. And then the Holy Spirit pours out his gifts on sons and daughters, men and women, without any specification of which gender gets which. And even Paul in his ministry and how he lived out his ministry and had women partnering with him and speaking and leading in his ministry. When I see all of that, the full preponderance of Scripture, I come to this conclusion. And this is my prayer and my desire for Cornwall Church. That here at Cornwall Church, with all of this together, that we would recognize that we would be a biblical egalitarian community. Let me explain what that means. First, what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that we're filled with domineering women and emasculated men. That's not what it means. What it means is that as brothers and sisters built on a foundation of humility, we recognize the worth and value of every single individual, male or female, because we've all been created and are co-bearers of the image of God, and we've all been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, male and female. That we in this church would recognize the Holy Spirit pours out his gift indiscriminate of gender but according to his purposes so that men and women are gifted and they have opportunities to serve along the lines of their giftedness. That men and women are both called to be able to serve Jesus Christ first, his body second, and the world third. And that together as a community that we would honor, respect, love, and as Paul says in Ephesians, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That, I believe, redeems what has been broken, what has been lost. It's what God ordained from the very beginning. It's what Jesus brought about. It's what the Holy Spirit did. It's what we long for in this church. You may not agree with me. You may leave this church. You might even be here this morning because Grant has a preacher that is a woman this morning and you were trying to get away from this whole thing. Now you're busted. This is my desire. So in, the, in the, the, the two minutes remaining, let me just say, women, let me address you. Ladies, it's Mother's Day. Some of you are moms. One of the greatest, highest callings you have is as a mom. I mean, Paul says to young Timothy, the faith that resided in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice now resides in you. One of the greatest things you can do is build the faith into your children. But even beyond motherhood, women, the Holy Spirit has given you gifts. And if you sit around not using those gifts, the body of Christ misses out, and so do you. And don't ever let anyone say that because you're a woman that you can't be used by God. I long for this to be a place where our young girls know that they are valued and they are stamped with the image of God and they are given gifts of the Holy Spirit and opportunities to use them. And men, let me talk to you. Take your cues of masculinity from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who was not threatened by women, who defended women, who advocated for women, who lifted up the value and the worth of women, who included women, who engaged with women in a God-honoring way. And men, don't shirk your responsibility and say, well, then I guess the women are going to do it. No, God has given you gifts as well. What if? What if we just embrace this? I know we won't always get it right, but what if we sought for this in this congregation?
that we all, brothers and sisters, humbly before Jesus Christ, our Savior, recognize that we are stamped with his image, gifted by his spirit, called to his service, all for his honor and glory. I think God would be pleased with that. All right. Not all of you agree with me on this. That's why we're having this conversation. Some of you may leave this church because of this. It's your decision. That's fine. I still honor you. I just say, in my looking at all of Scripture, this is where I land. One more thing. Some of you are saying, okay, I, I need more on this. I, I put some resources in your, in your link. This one, how I, uh, this book, How I Changed My Mind About Women in Leadership, Alan Johnson, he actually is the compiling editor of this. It's got about, I think, 27 different Christian leaders that talk about their journey in this conversation. Great, great book. This one, the Bill Ezekiel book, I, I'm just going to say right up front, this is a very deep theological treatise of this conversation. Not an easy book to read. This isn't a, oh, couldn't put it down. This is a difficult book. I'm just telling you right up front in case you say, it will explore into great detail what I covered on the surface, but it is not an easy book. This one is not a book. This is a sermon series that John Ortberg, Ortberg preached uh, about 18 years ago, and I think, I think if you go online, you can still get it. I don't think you can watch it. I don't think you can listen to it. You might be able to, to order CDs or the transcript. Um, but he spends four weeks talking about what I've tried to do in 40 minutes. One other one I didn't put in your, in your notes. I mentioned N.T. Wright, the foremost New Testament scholar. This one's um, on, the, on the website. It's called The Biblical Basis for Women's Service in the Church. Again, uh, a great, great read on that if you want to continue going deep with that. All right. So I shaved five minutes off of last night's sermon. Didn't quite get to ten. Hopefully it gives you enough to talk about, discuss. And we'll go forward. Why don't you stand as we close in prayer. Father, I pray that we would be a church, a community of your followers, so sacred, stamped with your image and redeemed by your blood and gifted with your spirit, that we would value and we would give opportunity and we would take seriously our calling and responsibility as men and women, sons and daughters, to make a difference in this world. Be with us as we have conversations around these matters. And Lord, may we honor you in all things. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Before you go, three things, real, real quick. This Wednesday night, we have our end-of-the-year celebration. Barbecue starts at 5. We're in here at 6.30 for a great celebration. Next week, we end, go into the LGBTQ conversation. Do not miss it. Today's Mother's Day. If you are not with your kids or your mom and you need a Mother's Day hug, I'm your guy. If it's just a rough day for you and you need a hug, I'm your guy. Hugs are here. Prayers are here. Love you. You're out of here. <laughs>